And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, and welcome back to Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, here on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. would like to welcome everyone to the show. Hope everyone enjoyed our contribution to Planet of the Apes Month on our last episode, where we covered the Sandy Frank debacle Time of the Apes. Uh, <laughs> been, been a lot of going ape this month on the network, and I hope that... Uh, Helped everybody get a little bit more monkey madness out of their uh, their regular dietary allotment of Planet of the Apes movies. Uh, we've got a good show for you today. We're going to be taking a look at not a Japanese movie, but a Korean movie. We're going to be taking a look at Korea's uh, quote-unquote national monster, Yungari. We've also got, of course, the next issue in Marvel's Shogun Warriors comic, which is Shogun Warriors number 11. And... Um, but first up, we do have a little bit of news I'd like to get into. Now, of course, the big news this year in the realm of Daikaiju was the release of Godzilla 2014. Hope everybody enjoyed the roundtable that I took part on on the Two True Freaks Network for the Godzilla 2014 uh, film review. I had a lot of fun doing that. Mostly positive opinions. Of course, uh, Paul Spataro was Dr. No, as usual. But, uh, beyond that, I think everybody seemed to enjoy the film, and I had a lot of fun recording that show. If you haven't listened to that one, uh, if you're a fan of this show, I'd recommend go checking that one out. Uh, Godzilla was released on May 16th, about five weeks ago from when I'm recording this, as of the w- uh, last weekend. So uh, its box office for five weeks in is $194 million domestic, 282 million international, meaning about 477 million in total. Now, the interesting thing is that this film has opened in China and did big business in China. I think it had like $25 million opening weekend, something like that, which is a big amount in China. But it has yet to open in Japan. That doesn't happen until the end of next month, end of July. Now, Japan is not normally a huge contributor to uh, international grosses for American films, and this is not because American films aren't popular, they are, but one has to consider the population size of Japan relative to other international markets, especially China, which has that many more eyeballs and that many more movie theaters. But this is still really good numbers for a Daikaiju movie, even one with the amount of hype behind it that Godzilla 14 had. Uh, the sequel has already been announced and greenlit. Gareth Edwards is going to be coming back. In fact, they're going to be working around his schedule for handling one of the Star Wars spin-off films. Uh, we're not sure what that Star Wars spin-off film is going to be, but Legendary has said they will work with Gareth to make sure that it fits in his schedule to do Godzilla 2. So that's really good news. Glad to see the movie doing well. And I'm I'm super excited. Can't wait to see it again. So I can't wait till it come out on home media, or uh, if I can catch it again in the theater, would be a real treat. Now, in related Godzilla 2014 news, um, Tomashine Nations, through their U.S. distribution arm Bluefin, did officially announce the SH Monster Arts Godzilla 2014 last month, right after the movie was released, actually. 
Now, this is scheduled to be released on or around November 30th here in the United States. And the retail right now is $67.99. Now, the way that Tamashi Nations works with Bluefin is that normally for Tamashi Nations toys like SH Monster Arts, SH Figure Arts, uh, Ultra Act, D Arts, things like that, is that you typically have to go through Japanese retailers to get them, meaning sites like AmiAmi.com, HLJ.com, eHobby, uh, you know, other import toy sites. Now, when they are announced for distribution via Bluefin, uh, th that means they're officially being released in the United States and you don't need to import them. So you can go to Amazon.com and you can order any of the um, Tamashii Nations figures that are uh, being distributed via Bluefin. Now, all SH Monster Arts toys so far have been distributed via Bluefin, so you don't need to import them. You can go and get whichever ones you want, as long as they're still available, through Amazon. And that's the case here. So if you want to pre-order this guy, you can go to the uh, 2TrueFreaks.com and use our Amazon.com link and pre-order it. And that'll lock you in for the best price that Amazon has between now and the end of November when it comes out. I'm very tempted. It looks really, really cool. As a general rule, I don't buy SH Monster Arts just for a budget and space considerations you know my space is at a very pre uh, very uh, premium uh, I have to sell my space dearly so to speak in my bonus room where I keep all my daikaiju stuff so big things like these I tend not to go for I tend to go for smaller stuff just because I can fit more stuff in it so I like the little dioramas and vinyls and you know other things like that that are a little more space conscious also budget wise these can get pricey at at $68 he's actually not that expensive relative to some of the larger ones like King Ghidorah or Biolanti so again it's what works best for you there's lots of options for Godzilla 2014 toys I'm seriously tempted by this one and I, I really got to think about whether or not I'm going to pull the trigger on it uh, this past weekend, as I'm recording this, was Heroes Con 2014 in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is, I consider to be my home, quote-unquote, Comic-Con for the most part. Um, I don't get to go to Dragon Con, which is Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, because I'm almost always traveling for Labor Day. I'm visiting family and thus unable to make it to the con. So Heroes Con, being in June, is a much easier sell for me because it's usually right around my birthday, and I'm usually not traveling for it. And I've got a good buddy of mine who lives in Rock Hill, South Carolina, right across the border. His house makes a great staging ground for going to the show. Now, some Daikaiju news out of the show. I got to meet uh, Godzilla artist extraordinaire Art Adams at the show. And uh, I, I brought my Godzilla color special, which was from Dark Horse in 1992. And, man, I, that, that issue brings back so many memories. The first Godzilla comic I ever bought, and to this day, probably my favorite single Godzilla comic book of all time. I absolutely love that. I'm amazed how good shape my copy is in, considering the hundreds of times I've read it. Just over and over as a kid, I used to read that one. And I got Art to sign that one, and we talked for a little bit. And what he told me was that, you know, I said I really, really liked it. He goes, I was very, he said he was very happy with how it came out, but apparently Toho was not. That Toho didn't like his design of Godzilla, that was too much detail, and that they didn't really care for it. But then they later traced some of his work to use as promotional artwork. So that, that was kind of funny, but it was nice to, to see Art Adams. And it was funny, in line, everyone else has all superhero books, and I've just got my one Godzilla comic for him. 
Also, I want to give a shout-out to another artist I met up with, uh, Joey Weiser. Now, jo I had met uh, Joey a couple of years ago at Heroes Con, and we reconnected uh, this year. Uh, I was introduced to his work at Heroes Con. He had a table with a lot of uh, kind of cartoony daikaiju drawings, so I got to talking. It turned out he did a webcomic called Monster Isle, along with several other projects that he works on. You can check out his work at www.tragic-planet.com. Uh, he's a, a big Daikaiju fan. He's a great artist. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had him uh, draw me a uh, original piece of Bemular, of course, my favorite Ultra Monster. And this year, I got another piece, Dodden, which is going to be a gift, so I'm not going to say what it is. And I also had, um, he had done a Kaiju Alphabet series, where it was A for Angurus, B for Balton, all the way through, and he had the original art for that, so I got J is for Jamila for myself. I saw it was Jamila, I couldn't pass it up. And I did pick up a copy of the Kaiju Alphabet, which he signed for me, so I wanted to give a shout-out to Joe, he's a real good guy, and go check out his site, at, like I said, at tragic-planet.com, and uh, see some of his art, he's a really good guy. All right, that's all the news I have for right now. I am going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to get into Young Gari here on Earth Destruction Directive. The Vietnam War, a conflict that changed America. Of those who served, many came back irrevocably changed, while many did not come back at all. This is their story. Marvel Comics presents The Nam. Join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics series, The Nom. Each episode, I will recap and review one issue of the series, as well as provide historical context that's important to understanding the events behind the story. Along the way, I will also take a look at the movies, music, and literature surrounding the Vietnam War. New episodes are posted every two weeks at incountry.podomatic.com. You can find show notes and other media at popcultureaffidavit.com. And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Our movie this time out is Yangari, also known in the United States as Yangari Monster from the Deep or just Monster from the Deep. Also worth noting is that I've seen Yangari spelled with two G's. I've seen it spelled with one G, and that goes for both uh, U.S. and Korean material. I've seen it spelled both ways, so it seems that there's a little bit of confusion about how exactly to spell this monster's name. Yangari was released in 1967. It was directed by Kim Kai-duk, written by Kim Kai-duk and Seo Young-sung. Music is by Jiang Jong-kyung. Special effects were by Kenichi Nakagawa, and it was produced by Chai Tae-jin. The Korean Space Agency, no, really, the Korean Space Agency, launches a rocket in order to monitor a nuclear test taking place in the Middle East. The rocket is manned by Sun, who has to leave his new bride, whom in the dub is not named, back on Earth. The release of the atomic energy causes an earthquake in Korea, which baffles the government since it seems to have a moving epicenter. And said moving epicenter is heading directly towards Seoul. Observing the carnage of the moving earthquake, a photographer catches a glimpse of the back of a giant monster emerging from the ground, but he and his military escort crash their car as they desperately try to escape. The photographer managed to get, manages to get back to Seoul, and the threat is revealed, a giant reptile named Yangari, after a legendary earthquake-causing monster. 
As Yangari marches on the city, the army makes their stand. Tanks prove less than useful against Yangari, and he continues to cause massive destruction, breathing fire and setting whole neighborhoods ablaze. Eventually, though, he seems to lose interest and heads out of the city, where he comes across an oil refinery, then cracks open a tank and drinks the oil. While doing this, though, Yangari causes a small explosion, which sprays him with a chemical that causes him great discomfort. This is observed by Icho, our resident obnoxious kid, who tells Ilu, our resident scientist, who in turn works on developing a refined version of the chemical. Yangari naps by the refinery, at least until Ichi shines a strange light on him. This light, which he stole from Ilu, causes Yangari to become very itchy, which naturally leads to Yangari dancing around to go-go music. Now awake, Yangari goes on a rampage again, firing a beam from his horn, for some reason, then smashing a bridge and turning back a squadron of fighter jets. But Ilu has completed his chemical, and Yangari is sprayed with it via helicopter and falls dead. Later, Ilu is celebrated as a hero and proposes to Suna, son's sister, and the Korean Peninsula never has a lick of trouble ever again. This is a very much a straightforward monster-on-the-loose scenario. It's really made more notable mostly by the fact that it was made in Korea and instead of Japan, as I said. Yangari is often considered, like I said earlier in the show, Korea's national monster inside the fandom, much like Godzilla typically represents Japan and King Kong represents the United States. I don't know that Yangari was ever all that popular even in Korea, but so the, the, the dearth of Korean monsters, Yangari is probably the most well-known of them, so that's why he earns this title. Uh, one note is, uh, that's interesting is coming from the Korean to the English is the pronunciation. There's two different distinct pronunciations that I've heard over the different versions of this film, as well as the remake, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit in, in a little while. Uh, there's one pronunciation that's on the public domain copy that's Yangari, but I've also heard Korean speakers say Yangari. And I like Yangari. I think it sounds a little bit tougher than Yangari, but I think you can go either way on this one because there's no real official translation as to, you know, this is the actual pronunciation of the American name. It's something you get into with Daikaiju a lot, is how do you say these crazy names? You know, not everything is as easy to say as Godzilla. So I go with Yangari, because I think that sounds better. A lot of standard Daikaiju generic elements pop up in this film. You know, we have a nuclear test, a serious-minded scientist, a precocious kid, a worrying girl, scenes of mass evacuation. We even have an earthquake, to which someone says, an earthquake? I thought those only happened in Japan. So here, by 67, you know, we're hip-deep in the Showa era. You know, Godzilla has already started making his, well, he already has made his face turn to being a hero. The Gamera films are well-established. So there's not a whole lot of new and different stuff introduced in this film. A lot of it is the same sort of things that we come to expect from the uh, you know this golden age of giant monster movies. So from a, as a first gasp kind of thing out of the uh, this out of the studio for doing a giant monster film, it makes sense that they would stay kind of in line with what was expected. But at the same time, one wishes they took more chances. You know, it's not as creative as some of the other films coming out at this time. It's more of a throwback to films from the 50s in a lot of ways. Even Yangari's design ends up being fairly generic. I mean, he's a big lizard, he's got a horn on his head, spines down his back. He would not look out of place on an Ultra series, especially with uh, breathing fire and shooting a beam from his, his horn on his nose. So it's, you know, uh, it's not nearly as creative a design as what we were getting from 
you know the the Godzilla series at this point with films like Godzilla vs the Sea Monster with Eb- with Ibera or Son of Godzilla with Kamakuras and uh, um, um, Kuamanga. Wow, just drew a blank there for a second. Or in the obviously in the Gamera series with monsters like Gauss and Virus, you know that were much more creative than what we got out of Yungari. Speaking of the Gamera series, the model work itself is about on par with what Dai was doing and appropriately with what Tsuburaya was doing on TV, to talk again about the Ultraman connection. The city-smashing scenes are, are very well done, you know, they're, they're not at the level of what Toho was doing, but they're certainly, uh, um, you know, well done in, a, in, in that sense. Uh, there's a scene where he destroys the bridge and is followed by the attack by the fighter jets. It's probably the best one of the effect scenes. It's just really well put together. The, the jets look, again, about comparable to what Dai or Subaraya TV was doing. The destruction of the bridge itself is very nice, very nice use of the, the big set with the bridge and the, uh, the river that it's crossing over. The effects director was Kenichi Nakagawa. Uh, he is Japanese, but I could not find any other information. I did some research and tried to find some more info on this guy, but this was the only film I ever found him credited on as an effects director. So there may be more than one Kenichi Nakagawa out there that worked in film, um, but this was the only stuff I could find for for him, so I'm not sure where he came from or if he worked on anything else. But he did a good job considering what had to be, one imagines, a very small, limited budget. The film itself is very clearly influenced by the original Gamera. There's even a couple of scenes that kind of directly uh, reference some of these early Gamera films. Uh, The scene of the kids partying as the monster attacks the city is directly from the original Gamera. Also, the salarymen drowning their sorrows in drink is also from Giant Monster Gamera. So those were nice touches that popped up, made me... Seeing them in color was a nice touch. We also get a scene of a car getting cut in half, which was used twice in the Gamera series, as we've already seen. Now, Baragon did that in 1966, and then Gauss did it in 67. And much like some of the, especially the, the, the second half of the Gamera films, but really through all of the color ones, there's a decent amount of monster gore. When Yongari is doused with the chemical and collapses, he starts bleeding out. Now, unfortunately, he seems to be bleeding out of his rear end. So this has some very unfortunate negative connotations that one could take from the way that that scene is is constructed but it is a lot of blood and and it kind of fits with the more you know uh, as as ridiculous as this sounds more the juvenile audience approach of having the monsters bleed out i I always call it you know the taking the red crayon all over your pencil drawing that you did of the the monsters fighting kind of thing there is a, a very ironic reference here. They talk about an earthquake with a moving epicenter, and it's ironic because we just did Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah a few months ago on the show, and that had an earthquake with a moving epicenter. And then Godzilla 2014 also just had an earthquake with a moving epicenter. So I think I may need to add that to Daikaid, my Daikaiju cliche list. And you know, this is the first I remember seeing it was right here in Yangari, so I thought that was very amusing. Now, there's a scene that this film is probably best known for, and that is Yangari's Go-Go Dance. And it's, uh, when I first time I watched this, I called my friend Joe, who is a Korean-American, and I said to him, yeah, this just set U.S.-Korean relations back 50 years, and this movie was made in 1967, so what does that tell you? Uh, But it's just, it's really, really strange, because it's a fairly straightforward, serious film until this point. I mean, yeah, we got plucky, precocious kid as a little bit of comic relief, but the monster has been treated very seriously. And then he just starts flailing around and waving his arms, and the kid's laughing with him. And most egregious of all is go-go music starts playing on the soundtrack. And it's like, wow, 
You know, Godzilla did some silly things. You know, the uh, the Highland Fling, as uh, we like to call it from Monster Zero, is one of the most legendary monster celebrations of all time. But this takes the cake as far as silly monster dances. And it's something that I I can't think of another film that even approaches this level of silliness from their, their titular monster and the only monster in the film. It's just strange. And it comes out of nowhere and then it's gone, you know, and they don't really mention it again, but it's like, wow. Somebody was having some fun with that one. Now, I will say he's not wearing the appropriate boots. He need to be wearing white high, you know, knee-high white leather boots. And then we really would have gotten some real go-go action out of Yongari. Right around, well, before the dancing scene, we get the bit of Yongari drinking the oil at the oil refinery. And what's really strange is, as a... Uh, Artifact of this being made full screen for television production or presentation in the U.S., the public domain version of this film actually cuts off the uh, scene of him drinking the oil. You see um, the what's his name, the kid in the Ichi in the the foreground looking, and you can see a little bit of Yungari's arms, but we can't actually see him picking up, you know, actually drinking the oil. The widescreen editions of this, which are available on uh, not you know like from MGM. They do show the, the him drinking the oil, so I thought that was kind of a disappointment because I don't have the widescreen; I only have the full screen copy of this. There's, there's some oddball stuff in in this film as well. The uh, you know Sun gets married, and then that on his honeymoon, on the first night of his honeymoon, he's called away by the space agency to go launch this rocket, and his wife is already nagging him. And all I could there are so many nagging Korean wife jokes I could make, but I'm not going to because I'm not going to go there. But I invite any of my Korean-American friends out there, or Korean friends, to go ahead and think of whatever Korean-American jokes you would like to make at this time. There we go. Good. Uh, then, of course, once he does get called, he gives her this Kirk kiss that would make Shatner blush. I mean, he smushes his face right into hers. You know, it's make sure that you're the only one people see when you're kissing the girl kind of school of acting technique. Early on, uh, Ichi gets to go to Ilu's lab when he steals the uh, the light that makes people itch. And uh, Ilu scolds him for this and instead lets, tells him, hey, play with these. And it's some vintage uh, robot toys. And they look like Japanese vintage uh, from mid-60s robot toys. And it's just neat to see them on there. I always like seeing toys like this in, in movies, whether they're American or international films, because it gets a, just a glimpse into the playthings of years past. I always like this also when they pop up on Ultraman with the kid playing with uh, Ultra Q toys or something like that. Just makes, you know, you don't think of these things as, as toys anymore. You always think of them as collectibles. But at the time, they were just playthings. So that was neat. When the photographer and his military escort are fleeing from Yungari, they drive off a cliff, and then the car explodes midway down the cliff. And all I could think of is, who's driving this car? Toonsis the driving cat? There's a Saturday Night Live reference for you. Another oddball thing, when Sun's rocket is launched on the uh, view screen excuse me, not in the view screen, we see the newspaper headline come up, and it clear, it's clear that the, the name of the rocket is the 7X rocket, because 7X is written in, um, well, in, in Western font amongst the Korean writing on the headline, but the dub says the Y3 rocket. I don't know why you would do that unless you just made it up and you weren't actually watching the film when you were writing the, narrated, the narration for the dub. I'm not really sure why they would do that, but that's, it's funny. It's just, it just, it, you look at it, it's just completely mismatched. I thought that was amusing. Another very interesting scene is we get a, uh, during a scene of panic during an evacuation, we get a Christian monk 
who starts yelling, repent, repent at everyone. And uh, now, I mean, I know that Christianity spread a little bit into Korea following, you know, the, the, the Korean War, but I wasn't, it was funny to see a Christian monk as opposed to a Buddhist monk, even at, at this stage in the 60s. And maybe someone who knows a little bit more about uh, Korean culture and history can write in and uh, let me know if this would be a common thing that you would see, so, you know, a, a Christian-style monk uh, telling people to repent in the face of a crisis as opposed to a more which one would might more typically expect to see, which would be a Buddhist monk. But it was it was a good scene, and I like stuff like that. It made me think of the scene in Gorgo, where the guy wears the clapboard saying the end is near, the end is near, and he get you know when everyone's panicking through the streets of London. And I I, I really appreciated that scene, and and like I said, it it's just stuck out as odd that it was a Christian monk, but I really liked that they went and did that, and it gives you know it's this film like I said, except for the the part with the go go dancing and some of Ichi's antics, is fairly straightforward and serious. So I thought that was a real nice addition to help sell that um, sell that tone now as i said this is available on archive.org in full screen as it is in the public domain or you can find it streaming on youtube now the youtube one is widescreen i think somebody obviously ripped this from a dvd and the, the youtube copy is very nice and widescreen that would be the one if you want to just stream it i would recommend although watching the uh, archive.org copy is very nostalgic because that was the one i saw when i was a kid on um, probably on channel 11 wpix it is available on dvd from alpha video this is the full screen copy of that uh, that public domain one i ha this is the one i own on dvd and other public domain outfits like st Clair entertainment's uh, giant monsters box set which i think is nine their nine movie box set it's got the giant behemoth on the front despite the fact that he's not in the set uh, also has a bunch of other Gamera films, and I think Warning from Space and the giant Gila monster on that one. Uh, now, from MGM, it's on a double feature with Conga as part of their Midnight Movies collection. That's the widescreen one. Now, so if you want it in widescreen, get the double feature with Conga. If you're uh, if you don't care about the widescreen, you want the old-fashioned one, go ahead and get the one from Alpha Video or St. Clair. That one will usually be cheaper. Also, although to be fair, I'm pretty sure that one, that double feature with Conga, probably like six bucks on Amazon. And, you know, to have it in widescreen is probably worth it. But there's lots of options. If you just want to watch it, you can find it for free online, no problem. Interesting to note is that the only real surviving print of this film is the American dub. Most likely the original Korean language uh, release of this film has been lost. And uh, I have not ever found a Korean copy. I've read, web I've read various websites about people trying to locate and track it down, but I've never actually seen a Korean copy. So at this point, it is considered a lost film. Yungari is a strange, strange little movie. It definitely belongs in the library of any real dedicated Daikaiju enthusiast, but it's not one of the best that the genre has to offer, whether in story or effects or even just sheer creativity. There are a lot of fun monster scenes, but they're all buffeted by really unremarkable human scenes. There's little interest generated in the human plot, uh, whether it's from the government side of things, or Ilu and Ichi, or Sun being out in space. It's all kind of perfunctory. We're just waiting for Yangari to come back every time the humans take over. Parts of the script themselves itself doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Towards the end, we get a scene where they try to evoke some sympathy for Yungari, but it's a really kind of a weak attempt after we've just watched him wade through Seoul and burn half the city down. You know, we don't feel bad for Godzilla at the end of Godzilla King of the Monsters. 
because he's been shown to be completely heartless and uh, just an engine of destruction. Yangari is very similar. Yeah, we get the scene of him dancing, but that doesn't endear us to him. It's just kind of strange out of left field. Yangari's not a monster like Mothra, where we feel for why they're doing what they're doing. Yangari is simply woken up by an atomic explosion and goes on a rampage. Much like we don't feel bad for Gamera at the end of, you know, Giant Monster Gamera. He gets put on a rocket and, sh and shot off in space! Doo -doo, doo -doo, doo -doo. Uh, but they don't send him cheesy movies. He is the cheesy movies. But anyway, so that the tonal shift is a little odd there towards the end. Uh, it's a strong effort. It really is. But it's not surprising that this did not spawn a sequel. And the Angari doesn't come back until 1999 when the big bud. I quote big budget in air quotes, big budget for a Korean film remake called Yangari 99, and its later version, which was called Yangari 2001 Upgrade, otherwise known as Yangari vs. Psyker, which traded in the um, tokusatsu aspects to make a CGI monster in the vein of an American Godzilla film. In fact, that was the main reason why that film got made. But those are Yangari's only appearances. He never pops up. There was never a sequel. He never gets to fight another monster in a suit. You know, he does fight Psyker, which is another CG monster in the remake, and we'll cover that uh, down the road. That film was released on DVD in this country under the title Reptilian. But, as I said, it, it, all that having been said, it's a fun movie to watch, and it definitely would make for a good party movie. Uh, get some other fellow Daikaiju fans, maybe make some kimchi or, uh, you know, some Korean rice noodles. I say this again because my buddy Joe just made an awesome Korean barbecue this past weekend. Um, and so it's worth giving a look to sit down and have fun with friends. I don't think it's going to change anybody's life, but, you know, 90 minutes of entertainment is still a pretty uh, worthwhile endeavor. All right, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to come right back and get back into some Shogun Warriors here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Now it's time to take a look at the next issue of Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors series, which is issue number 11. My Shogun Warriors number 11 was cover dated of December 1979. Our writer is, as always, Doug Mensch, pencil or Herb Trimpey. Inker is Jack Abel. Letterer, Diana Albers. Colorist, colorist Carl Gafford. Editor, Alan Milgram. Editor-in-Chief, Jim Shooter. And our title is... The Hand of Fate. In Tokyo, Genji Odashu, at the helm of Kumbatra, continues to do battle against the giant, serpentine, demonic-looking Hand of Five. The fray has recently been joined by the Japanese Self-Defense Force, giving the monster even more targets to attack, and Genji more to worry about as she tries to stop the beast. Meanwhile, in Madagascar, Ilongo Savage studies the pictures of the Star Child monster he defeated a few issues back but is disheartened that they can reveal no more about the strange monster from outer space. He is contacted by Dr. Tambura from Shogun Sanctuary to remain on alert in case Genji needs his help in Japan. Ilongo tells his colleagues, including his main squeeze Judith, that he may have to leave the center again suddenly, 
despite the still fragile relationship with the locals over the Star Child's attack. Back in Japan, Genji manages to get the Hand of Five away from the troops, using Combatra's five-way split to draw the monster into following suit. As a massive dogfight breaks out once again in the skies above Tokyo, various modules dodging and weaving to and fro. Looking on as the robot machines battle the snakeheads, Genji's friend Kosei wonders if she is piloting the robot, but soon dismisses his own theory. Because we know girls can't pilot giant robots. Meanwhile, in California, Richard Carson and his girlfriend Dina are contemplating the man in black who broke into Carson's home, when they too are contacted by Dr. Tambora to be on alert. Carson's eagerness to pilot Raiden to help Genji causes a bizarre wave of jealousy to break out in Dina, who tells Carson that if your little Genji can handle the big time, then so can I, Buster. So can I. All subplots accounted for, copyright Sean Angle, 2012, all rights reserved. We head back to Japan once again, as Genji still has her hands full with the evil... er... hand. Genji considers which attacks have been successful in this engagement and comes up with a quick plan. Each of Combatra's five modules fires into the finger ports of the palm of the monster hand. The combined assault is enough for the heads to reattach themselves and the hand to retreat. Moving too fast to be pursued, Genji considers the day saved. But rather than shimmering Combatra away, Genji tells Dr. Tambura that she will keep the Shogun for a while, leaving Japan and her legal problems therein behind her. Okay with helping her become an international fugitive, Tambura agrees. Genji shimmers down to Kosei, telling him that she is leaving. Kosei is flabbergasted both at her disregard for her job in the law, but also for leaving him. Genji tells Kosei she needs time to think about all of that, and flies off in Kambatra. Back at the Shogun Sanctuary, Dr. Tambura and the others pick up a strange signal, a meteor which has materialized out of nowhere, and is now speeding towards Earth. Next issue, reunited again, the mighty Shogun warriors battle together against the Moon Menace. Well, that was exciting now, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, Combatra gets to turn back the hand of five, meaning that our Shoguns are three for three in solo combat over the last run of issues. But have these fights been more than they've seen on the surface? Hmm, I wonder. Let's get to some notes. Our cover shows Combatra hammer-fisting the uh, Hand of Five down into the ground, and we see the rubble being thrown up as the uh, JSDF forces are running towards us, the reader. Uh, again, nice use of the humans Trimpy, uh, in the foreground. Trimpy's been doing this a lot, uh, showing us humans in the foreground to give us our sense of scale. I, I really like the use of this on the covers. gives an idea that this is, you know, to someone that maybe is not familiar with the Shoguns, that these are, in fact, giant robots and giant monsters. I also like the use of the ruined buildings. We see uh, the building to uh, our left looking at the cover is on fire, and then the one on our right is we see the girders and beams sticking up and the rubble as the bricks have fallen down. So good sense of the carnage that's taking place. Cover itself, and we don't see a whole lot of combatra on it. We get a good look at the snake heads on the hand of five. Decent cover. Not one of the best, but certainly not one of the worst. Page one is our splash page. Um, it's interesting here, we see Combatra from the rear, which has happened a few times on this uh, series where we've seen the robots from the rear on the splash page, mostly to give us a good look at the monster. And that's what we get here. Uh, there's yellow skies for some reason. I'm not really sure why you would choose yellow skies here other than you've got a lot of blue on Combatra and it offsets nicely against that and the dark green of the hand of uh, five. 
Um, not a great, again, like the cover, not a great splash, but certainly serviceable. And again, we do get more of the army on the bottom to show scale. Uh, page three, panel one. Um, the, <laughs> on the previous page, the hand of five goes in and grabs Combatro like a big hand again and wraps around him. And then on this page, it unloads with the five heads all blasting out with their different weapons at once. And great coloring here by uh, Carl Gafford. He really looks like he's enjoying his work on this book. You know, we see uh, in silhouette, we see Combatra, and then we have an explosion on him, and then an explosion behind him that's all Kirby Crackle. So the first inner explosion is orange, and then the silhouette of Combatra is yellow with uh, uh, essentially speed lines uh, blasting out uh, the radius from the explosion. And then behind him is a, a deep red with the black Kirby Crackle all in it. It's a really nifty panel showing the amount of power that's being uh, fired on, uh, on Combatra by the Hand of Five. Further on down the page, panel four, we get a panel that's actually very close to the cover. Uh, if you take a look at the on the cover, we've got a tank where the cupola is being smashed off, and we see a covered truck that's being blasted to the side. Both those elements are here in this panel. The actual layout of um, the Hand of Five and Combatra is different, but the, the, the Army hardware looks very similar, so a nice little uh, touch there. Turning over to page seven. Now this is an odd page because it's split between the Elongo Savage subplot, and then the fight in Japan. Uh, it's mostly not notable for me because the layout of the panels is a little gonzo. Uh, the top, it, and most of this book is laid out in straight lines. This one, everything's kind of at an angle. So we've got, you know, panels that look like trapezoids and, uh, you know, just, pair, just odd polygons. And uh, it's no clear reason that I can look at this and see why this page got this treatment. Got this treatment, I should say, but the other uh, other pages in the book did not, which stayed more rigidly structured. It does break, break it up a little bit, but there's not any real great action or anything that it calls attention to. So, in fact, panel two here, where we see Judith reacting to Alongo saying he's got to leave, having the angled panels forces the narration box to be at like a 20-degree angle here. So it's, you got to turn it a little bit because it kind of runs at an odd angle. It's almost as if you were off square when making the lines to write the dialogue. Turning over to page 10, panel 5. Uh, once again, Combatra uses the five-way split technique, splitting apart just in time as the big fist of the hand of five is flying right at his uh, midsection. I get a real animation vibe from this sequence, uh, the, the split up and then the dogfight following it. You know, in my mind, I can really picture how the swooping and diving of each module would play out in animation. You can really see, in a cartoon sense, see the sense of motion. Then there's speed lines all over the place. We see, uh, you know, in, in, on page 10, we got them splitting off in each direction. On the next page, we have them as the hand zooms up, and then they counterattack from the four... Uh, airborne combatra modules, great use of speed lines, and really, again, conveying the frenetic motion of everything going in every different direction in this dogfight. Uh, the dogfight continues over on page 14. Um, <laughs> for some reason, I just get this mental image of Herb Trimpey sitting at his, uh, at his drawing desk using various things to zoom around, like staplers and tape dispensers and, you know, uh, books to zoom around uh, to get an idea in the perspective and the facings of the different pieces, because there's, there's a lot of elements. I mean, there's nine different elements flying around here, between, the, I said, the five heads of the Hand of Five and then the Combatra, the four flying Combatra modules. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but I, it brings a smile to my face, so that's all that matters. 
Pages 15 through 19, uh, this is the Richard Carson and Dina subplot. Uh, it makes sense from, from uh, Mensch to add more emotion to this already that's kind of vaguely romantic subplot. I mean, they're kind of together, but they're, you know, not like lovebirds or anything. But that having been said, Dina's jealousy comes off a little too sudden and a little half-baked. Because, you know, Richard has told her about, you know, it's me and these two other folks that pilot these giant robots and defend the Earth. And Dina didn't believe him. But then they had to fight uh, Cerberus. And now she does believe him. And she, I mean, she was in, in uh, riding with him. And so now when he shows concern for one of his fellow pilots, because it happens to be a woman, she gets all jealous and... I don't know. That just seems a little too on the nose, you know, that, oh, she has to become jealous because she's a woman. That seems a little silly. You'd think Dina would understand, like, well, I need to help my friends because we're the only ones that pilot these giant robots. And, you know, one gets the feeling that if he wanted to rush off to Madagascar to save Alongo Savage, that, you know, Dina wouldn't have cared. And just because Genji's a woman, she has to get jealous. And I think that kind of diminishes the character of Dina a little bit, who has been shown to be able to take care of herself just fine in this series, and as she constantly reminds her, she's a stunt woman, she knows the risk, she can handle anything, but, you know, apparently Carson having another female friend is uh, outside the realm of what she can handle. Uh, turning over to page 21, panels 1 through 3, this is a neat little sequence where after uh, the module that uh, Genji is piloting, takes on fire from the Hand of Five. She has to use a fire control system uh, to put out the flames on board the the jet so that it can continue flying. It's just really neat because she actually has a fire control button that she presses, and then we see a shot inside of the fire suppression system shooting out the foam to uh, take out the fire. It's a neat little sequence. It shows that, yeah, we were thinking about these as actual machines and not just, uh, you know, super devices that can do whatever we want. They actually are still mechanical. I thought that was a nice touch. Didn't have to be in there, but I thought it was very creative. Uh, page 22, panels 5 through 9. A great sequence here where all of it takes up the entire bottom half of the page, and we see all of Combatra's modules open fire in in order as Genji gets the idea to fire everything into the finger ports of the palm in order to make the force the hand to recombine. And we get some really nice sound effects. From left to right, we get boosh, choom, boosh, boosh, vzit, and fmram. Like, nice, nice onomatopoeia sound effects there, and they're all... I like that each one kind of matches. And I like that we get two sets of boosh, but the uh, the second boosh is a double boosh. It's boosh-boosh, because it's the double-barrel pom-pom guns from the, the one ground-based vehicle. Very amusing panel. Uh, pages 26 through 30, Genji's decision to become a fugitive from justice seems just as odd a turn as Dina suddenly becomes super jealous. You know, Genji's been very kind of straight-laced, even-keeled over the course of the series. It seems like, instead of running away from justice, she could very easily demonstrate why she was taken away from, or why she was kidnapped with the plane. She could very easily demonstrate her innocence now. So it's odd that, you know, Tambura is cool with her just taking Kombatra without a debriefing or repair or analysis when he's been kind of a hard-ass about that over the course of the series about, you know, bringing them back in to review film and, again, just generally be debriefed and for the robots to be repaired. It's like, no, no, that's cool. Just take her. Whatever you need it, okay? Just, uh, you know, bring it, bring it back with a full tank. So n neither of those, that development just make, doesn't make sense from either perspective. 
And, uh, I mean, I'm assuming, personally, that her leaving is part of her and Kosei's subplot more than anything else. It just seems like an odd turn for the character when, again, she could probably go in front of the court now and demonstrate, see, this is why I disappeared with the plane, you know, that, uh, you know and I just saved your bacon, so maybe you should let me go. But, you know, oh, maybe we'll see something, maybe something more uh, sensible, I guess, will develop from that plot in future issues. Uh, page 30, panel 6, our cliffhanger panel, uh, where we see the meteor being observed on the view screen at Shogun Sanctuary. It's a little small. I would have preferred for the subplot scenes of Genji and Kosei that you know takes up you know, a third of this page and several pages before have been tightened up a little bit, so maybe we could have rearranged this page and gotten a big panel showing the meteor. As it is, it seems a little cramped, and uh, we don't really get much... The meteor itself, as a threat, doesn't get much time to shine. You know, it's just thrown in there, and it's small in the panel that it's in, because it's all the way, essentially, in the background, because we have Tambora, and then Charn, and then two technicians between between us and the view screen, and then the meteor's, you know, it's not big, huge on the view screen. It's fairly, you know, uh, it's, it's about the size of the guy's head sitting in front of it, so it doesn't look all that impressive. Solid action issue overall, but... A little too scattered with subplots that don't really advance. There are more of just look-ins on the characters more than any real advancement. And then the one advancement we did get was Dina becoming super jealous, which I didn't particularly care for. The fight scenes are good, but they kind of lack momentum in this issue, where previously they had more room to kind of stretch their legs a little bit and really get us involved in the action here. It seems every time we get going, we cut away to one of the subplots. Still, all told, a good issue good cliffhanger. This series has been very good about having good cliffhangers, and it'll be nice to see the Shoguns back together again in the next issue after they spent quite a while split up. You know, we had the, after the initial battle with uh, Rakor and then the um, the mech monster, they've been split up since then. So we've had the fight with uh, Cerberus, we've had the fight against the Star Child, now we've had the fight against the Hand of Five. So it's been a few, it's been about half a year since the team's uh, real time, since the team has uh, worked together. So it'll be nice to see that next issue. Uh, let's see, any ads, interesting ads here? Let's take a look through the uh, back cover. has the Lego Expert Builder system, and I never had any of these, but I, I always like this ad just because it has a forklift, which means I get to sing, He tried to kill me with the forklift! Woohoo! Uh, we get the Saturday's Best on ABC cartoon ad, which uh, features Plastic Man, Mighty Man and Yuck, Rickety Racket, Fang Face, and Fang Puss, Scooby and Scrappy-Doo, Spider-Woman, uh, the Super Friends in new episodes. Very nice. We get to see Zan and Jaina on there, which is, uh, well, I shouldn't say Zan and Jaina. We just get Zan. We get Aquaman, Zan, Wonder Woman, Superman, Batman, and Robin. I guess having two girls in there would have just not been, not been okay. Um, Heroes World has an ad. All new superhero rubber masks. These great over-the-head, full-face rubber masks that are great for any time, especially Halloween. Choose from Spider-Man, Batman, Hulk, okay, I'm with you right there, or Red Skull. It's like, yikes, one of these things is not like the other. The Red Skull mask looks pretty pretty uh, terrifying as well. Also, the uh, Hulk Power Coin Bank. Save your money the super way with the all-new Hulk Bank. Watch Hulk hit the bell and make a deposit. This reminds me of the ones we used to see as a kid when we go on vacation in uh, train country in Pennsylvania in the Poconos, these little um, metal banks, and you'd put the coin in and press the button, and it would do an action to put the coin into the uh, into the bank itself. 
Continuing the trend of Saturday morning cartoon uh, uh, advertisements, we get Wowie Zowie CBS Saturday Mornings looking good. Interesting lineup here: Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll, the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show, which uh, is just very strange to me because Foghorn Leghorn is colored wrong, and he has like bright a bright yellow head and a bright yellow tail, and that's just strange. And then Yosemite Sam looks like he's wearing the flag of like Jamaica because he's got green. A, like a green and yellow shirt, black pants, red boots, a red and green hat. I don't, I don't know if he would fit in in Jamaica. Uh, the all-new Popeye Hour. The new Fat Albert Show. Jason of Star Command. Now this one is uh, Tarzan and the Super 7. Who would have thought Tarzan would get top billing over Batman? And then also the Freedom Force. Yeah. I don't really remember. I mean, I remember watching the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. But that's about it. I don't remember what... And Fat Albert. I remember watching Fat Albert. I don't remember watching Tarzan the Super 7. Let's see. Got Grit. Hmm. Put stars on your t-shirts. Color photo iron-ons from Whoppers. Cheryl Ladd, Suzanne Summers, Kiss, or the Dallas Cowboy Cheerleaders. Homina, homina, homina. Oh, uh, let's see. We got a bullpen, bullpen Bolton's page where they talk about the Micronauts. Um... Stan, what is Stan? Stan talks about Epic in the soapbox. Uh, we get a, oh, we have a hostess ad. Spider-Man meets June Jitsu. How do I get into these things? I go out into the deli and look what I run into. June Jitsu. June Jitsu, gorgeous but evil expert in karate, kung fu, and other martial arts. It'd be easier running into a bus. I'm being clobbered. If I could keep her hands busy, I could take care of her feet before they take care of me. Hey, wait! Catch these, Junie! Another trick, Webhead? Mmm, Twinkies Cakes, my favorite. Delicious golden sponge cake, fluffy cream filling. I'll finish these, then I'll finish off Spider-Man. Thanks to Hostess, June won't be busting out all over for quite a while. Thanks for the delicious Twinkie Cakes, Webhead, but we'll meet again. I have a feeling that's a threat, not a promise. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies Cakes. I could see Spider-Man going toe-to-toe with Junjitsu. I'd rather see Junjitsu fight like Shang-Chi or Iron Fist. Now that would be something. Get Junjitsu in here to fight, uh, you know, Tangle with the Heroes for Hire or the Master of Kung Fu. I could see that. I could see that. Oh, hodgepodge ad. Ah, and here we go. This is one I was looking for. Inside back cover, new electronic action toy, ROM has come. Evil is on the run from outer space. To the pages of Marvel Comics, to your toy store, comes the mighty champion of justice and truth, greatest of all space knights, ROM. How, I mean, it's absolutely amazing to me that Parker Brothers must still own ROM and they're sitting on it so that Marvel can't reprint any of ROM's appearances. This past weekend at Heroes Con, I actually bought Power Man Iron Fist number 73, which features ROM, and in fact is the legendary bit where ROM opens fire and in and the beginning of the issue and vaporizes a hooker in front of her pimp uh, as immortalized on the internet as, where is ROM's money? <laughs> oh, Rom, what are we going to do with you? Still say Rom should have been the hero in Secret Invasion, but again, that's neither here nor there at this point. All right, that's all I've got on Shogun Warriors number 11. We're going to come uh, take a quick break, plug a podcast promo in here, and we'll be right back on Earth Destruction Directive. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again, may have about a father and daughter 
I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way. Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this Ultraman Taro, and this Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, which is listener feedback and emails. And I have a big stack of them here today. Doing those guidance shows, I don't usually do email on them, so I got a little bit backed up here, but I'm going to run through them all today, and um, I just want to say if you want to email into the show, it's earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and you can also find it on the outro tag at the end of the show. So let's get right into it. Our first email comes from Robert Ludwig, and the subject is simply Godzilla. Uh, Robert was Boober9 on the old uh, Two True Freaks forum on forumforgeeks.com. And Robert writes, Luke, just wanted to drop you a quick note to let you know how much I really like listening to your show. While I might not know my Daikaiju monsters well, I, of course, know Godzilla. Anytime I see a Godzilla movie on one of our movie channels, I think of this show. If my son, age six, is around, we usually watch some of the show and I get peppered with questions. I answer the best I can. Robert, I hope that listening to this show has helped you be able to answer more of those questions. I know how that goes. Uh, I, my oldest is five, and if we're watching something, he just asks me a ton of questions. And so I end up learning a lot of stuff that I never thought I would know about certain things just from looking it up to be able to answer those questions. Robert continues, anyway, my son Peter drew a picture and I told him I knew of somebody who would love to see a Godzilla picture. I have attached it. The army is attacking Godzilla on the upper right side of the page. Godzilla is fighting Mechagodzilla, a metal G with a drill on his nose. Below them is Space Godzilla with his crystals. Of course, you can only see part of his back. Keep him coming, or excuse me, keep him stomping, Robert Ludwig and Peter. And they have a picture attached here, and oh my gosh, this is glorious. I love it. Godzilla has this really great, determined look on his face. He is being attacked on all sides by the military and Mechagodzilla and Space Godzilla, and I really, really love it. Uh, I was so glad that Robert sent this to me. And Peter, if you're out there listening, great job, buddy. Keep drawing monsters as one monster fan to another. I remember being your age, drawing monsters just like this. And so just keep doing it. Keep it up, man. Maybe Art Adams will have uh, you know some competition in the coming years. I am. I asked Robert if it was okay if I posted that picture, so I'm going to post this picture, a link to it, in the show notes. And so I want to share this with everybody. Just absolutely great 
just made me smile looking at uh, Peter's artwork of the King of Monsters fighting on all comers, and we all know Godzilla's going to win. Thank you very much for Robert, writing in, Robert, and thank you again to Peter for your very much appreciated artwork. Our next email comes from Mr. Tim Elliott from Carrollton, Texas, former sponsor of Earth Destruction Directive, and his subject is EDD Prophecies of Nostradamus. Greetings, Luke. Great episode. I just finished it, and I just visited www.cultaction.com and placed an order for Prophecies of Nostradamus. You really piqued my interest in this film. As time grows near, will you do a special podcast on the upcoming Godzilla film? That shows you how behind I am on emails. Yes, I, I totally did. Thank you very much. I'm more pumped for this than Pacific Rim, a movie I must admit to not loving when I first saw it, but it is growing on me each time I revisit it. Uh, let me just pause right there. Um, yeah, you know, I've, I've seen that reaction to some folks on Pacific Rim that, you know, they were a little bit underwhelmed by it in the theater, but now watching it at home on, you know, HDTV, being able to, to see more of the detail and take it all in, they've enjoyed it more. I really enjoyed it up front, but again, I think I may be more prone. And I hope you enjoyed the Godzilla episode, uh, Tim, and, and um, that, it, you know, I hope you enjoyed the film as well. Let's see. Tim continues. Have you ever run across a copy of the Toho film Gorath? I have tried to see this film for years. My wife and I are taking a trip to Tokyo for my 50th birthday in a few years. I know Japan does not have much in the way of kaiju merchandise. Tim, I really hope you're being sarcastic. I really do, because if not, I think you may be operating under a false pretense, my friend. Uh, he continues, but I hope to pick up a few souvenirs. Sorry to hit you with so many questions, Luke. Keep the show coming and keep them stomping. Cheers, Tim, Carlton, Texas. Gorath is one of those films, much like Prophecies of Nostradamus and Half Human, that is hard to find, but not because it's banned. It's just out of print. There is a Region 2 DVD of Gorath, so if you have a Region 2 or Region 3 DVD player, you can get that, but there's no English on it. So unless you can read um, or speak Japanese, you're kind of out of luck. I've seen a couple of bootlegs of Gorath floating around on the Internet. I've never picked one up. Gorath is a film that involves... A, a, basically a rogue planet named Gorath that's going to crash into the Earth. And so they devise a plan to attach uh, jets to the poles and shift the Earth out of its way. Now, there is a giant monster in Gorath in the original Japanese version, the giant walrus named Maguma, or Magma, depending on how you translate it. And I want to say that Magma was cut completely out of the American release of Gorath when it was released by AIP. I'm pretty sure it released Gorath back in the 60s. It's on my short list of films I'm still looking for. It hasn't ever been as high on my want list as Prophecies of Nostradamus and uh, Half Human just because of the, the controversy surrounding those films and their truly lost, you know, in the vault, so to speak, status. But I will see if I can hunt. Like I said, I'm still actively hunting down Gorath. There's a few other. Secret of the Telegion is another one of the mutant films that's just really hard to find. Uh, there, there's one or two others, just oddball films. Uh, I'm glad you liked um, the show on Prophecies of Nostradamus. Please write in and let me know what you thought of the film, if you had a chance to watch it. And again, uh, cultaction.com. I've had good dealings with this uh, site. The guy who runs it's a real good guy. So give it a look. They've got all sorts of crazy, um, you know, obscure uh, international films that you just really just can't find anyplace else. So definitely give him a check out. Thanks for writing in, Tim. Up next, we have an email with the subject, Nostradamus, I just love the Fighting Irish, and it comes from my good friend, Mr. Ben Avery. 
Ben writes, awesome episode and unexpected. As much as I enjoy the big G and the turtle G, I also have an appreciation for other stuff. And I had heard of this movie, but had no idea what it was, aside from the controversy. So thanks. This was a nice education, Ben. And you can check out Ben's website at benavery.com. Ben, I'm glad that I was able to shed some light on this movie for you. I said it's just so obscure that it you know most folks have never even heard of it and then when you you get into situations like my father i told my dad oh yeah you gotta check out this film prophecies of nostradamus and i said I'll, I'll lend you my copy of it so you can watch it well he goes oh i've seen this i said are you sure about that he goes oh yeah i've seen this i'll give it a watch though it's been a long time since i watched it and then he calls me and he says oh that wasn't the movie i thought it was he said i thought it was the man who saw tomorrow with orson wells and i was like yes that's the other nostradamus movie but this one's a little bit crazier than the one with orson wells although that's a good movie too in its own right thank you very much for writing in ben like i said i'm glad you uh, i was able to help you learn a little bit more about prophecies of nostradamus our next email is entitled random junk and comes from trent hackenberry and trent writes hello last time i wrote you gave me permission to rant and ramble well, uh, I have to say, considering that's what I do on this show, the listeners are more than welcome to do that. Trent continues, well, I don't have anything to really ramble about. I felt it was time to write in again. I enjoyed your Guardian Beasts episode and wanted to mention something. You stated how this movie is a bit of a departure from the Godzilla formula. And while it is, I have to say that this is one of my favorite movies. In particular, the idea that Godzilla is the souls of the restless dead lost during the war. Not only am I a fan of the supernatural, I kind of feel that this is a better origin for Big G than the old radiation thingy. It seems to make more sense to me that, to think that Godzilla is of more of a supernatural force than just some dead dino that got blasted by radiation. Also kind of explains his role as protector in the other films. I'm going to stop right there for a second. GMK is, is a really good film, even though, like I said, it is a departure. So it's not surprising that as many folks like it as they do. I really enjoy it, too. So I'm right there with you. The idea of the, the Restless Dead being one of the reasons why Godzilla can be seen as a protector in the other films is, is kind of an interesting way to look at it. Because in this film, or in GMK, I should say, very clearly the Restless Dead is why he's being aggressive towards the nation. So I guess in different situations, he would be uh, defending the nation versus being aggressive towards it if we go with that origin. I can get on board with the idea of a more supernatural origin for Godzilla in certain respects. I really like the science fiction origin, you know, the, the allegorical power of the atomic bomb and all that. But, you know, having a supernatural origin for a Daikaiju is perfectly welcome. There's plenty of mystical monsters in, you know, the Godzilla series and in the Ultra series. So there's no, you know, that, that per that's a perfectly reasonable explanation for them. And it does provide another rationale for why Godzilla is so absolutely unstoppable. You know, is if there's some supernatural force outside the realm of science that gives him his power, that would go to a way to explain how he is a, you know, a true uns the 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 both the irresistible force and the immovable object at the same time. Let's see. Trent continues. Uh, where is I? Also, I dig on the whole guardian beast idea. I think they should have ran with the four holy beasts from Chinese myth, with Angurus as the black turtle, Rodan as the vermilion bird, King Caesar as the white tiger, and of course Ghidorah as the yellow dragon. But that's just me being a nerd, I guess. No, I think it's a great idea. I totally think it's a great idea. I mean, essentially, that's what the Guardian Beast concept is, right? It was, uh, you know, and uh, we already saw King Caesar as a Guardian Beast in Okinawa and Godzilla vs. the Cosmic Monster. So I totally could have gone behind that. 
you know, uh, considering, I mean, it might have ended up being Baragon instead of Anguirus, but, you know, hey, that works too, right? Speaking of, Trent continues, I'm still loving the coverage of the Shogun Warriors. Don't know if I mentioned it in my last email a while back. I was able to find a, a stack at my local comic store here in San Antonio, Heroes and Fantasies. That monster turning into a giant hand is awesome. Well, I hope you liked our uh, coverage of the second half of that in this uh, episode. Reminds me of the villain, the Sneagator from Kanuki Man. That's a good point. There's a lot of demon hands in um, in, in Japanese you know, in anime and tokusatsu and manga and stuff like that. I didn't think of the Kaniku man. That's a good one. I was I always think of um what is it? it's it's devil was it Devil Megatron from Car Robots, which became Robots in Disguise over here for Transformers, and he was called Galvatron. Because the original Gigatron had five modes and then Devil Gigatron had ten and one of his modes was the flying evil hand. But that makes me think of that. Very cool. Uh, he continues, speaking of giant robot fights, are you familiar with the Capcom title Tech Romancer? It's an awesome little fighter for the Dreamcast featuring giant robots, the main character of which is kind of a cross of Giant Robot and Mazinger. Oh, I guess Giant Robo and Mazinger. Check it out. Uh, I am not familiar with that one. I do have a Dreamcast, but unfortunately the laser is dead on it, so it's kind of hard to play games on it. I'll have to look that one up. Maybe I can find an emulator for it. I'm more familiar with the games like um, Super Robot Wars and stuff where they take the different robots from different series and kind of all throw them together into the mix. Uh, let's see. Trent continues. Any, anywho, hope this all makes sense and keep them stomp. Until next time, Trent HPS Bikini Girls! Thank you very much for writing in, Trent. A lot of good points there. I really like your idea of the four guardian beasts from Chinese myth and using the uh, the traditional uh, uh, Godzilla monsters to fill those roles. I think that would have been a cool movie in addition to what we got in GMK. Although for Black Turtle, maybe you could use Cameobus. Use an actual turtle. Hmm? You know? Eh. Just a thought. All right, our last email tonight comes from Mr. Gene Hendricks and is entitled, Damn You, Jackanetti! And Gene writes... Luke, I have just finished going through Earth Destruction Directive, and you have made me really want to start watching these movies and shows that I haven't seen. Damn you for adding another thing to my list of things that I feel I have to do, which will annoy my wife. I can think of no more noble endeavor than annoying one's wife with Godzilla movies. Jane, just want to put that out there. He continues, well, I suppose I can use the excuse that my daughter wanted to watch them, but I don't think she'll buy that. Well, you know, hey, get, uh, get girls interested in stuff. You know, it's this whole... Uh, lean forward or lean in thing now, right? Getting girls into things that are traditionally not um, identified with and marketed to. You know, like um, I'm thinking of all the, you know, STEM stuff and engineering backgrounds and science and technology and math, which is what engineering is, uh, or excuse me, what STEM is for girls and all these, you know, the girls with skin knees uh, movement. I just saw an article on Yahoo yesterday about the new Pixar film being totally princess free and somehow that's you know, that that makes it more suitable for girls rather than something with princes. I don't know. I would The article didn't make a lot of sense to me, but be that as it may, totally get girls into monsters. Why not? You know, my, my niece loves monsters, and she's three. So, you know, go for it, I say. And maybe she'll, maybe she'll actually like them, too, so you got that going on. Gene continues, Seriously, though, I have really enjoyed the show and your passion for the subject matter. I remember watching the old Godzilla movies on channels 9 and 11 out of New York when I was a kid, although I am five years your senior. Going to stop you right there, Gene. Yes, channel 9, W-O-R, out of Chicago, and channel 11, W-P-I-X. 
Uh, I mean, those are still, well, I'm pretty sure they're both still running to this day. So even though you're five years older than me, we're right there in the same same wheelhouse. You know, Saturday and Sunday afternoons watching Godzilla movies, Gamera movies, and Kung Fu movies on those channels. I love it. Gene continues, for this, I blame my dad. Some of his favorite movies are King Kong and Mighty Joe Young, so he's the one that introduced me to the giant monster genre. To this day, I will stop and watch King Kong, original version, thank you, if it is ever on. Wow. Let me stop right there. My dad's favorite movie is King Kong, and one of the first movies I ever remember watching is King Kong. And Mighty Joe Young was another one that I watched as a kid, too. And my dad introduced me to giant monsters with the tape I've talked about here that had Godzilla, and then Ghidorah, the three-headed monster, then Rodan, then Monster Zero on it. So I think for a lot of guys our age, we're going to find that it was our dad that was a fan of this stuff that introduced us to it. And I thank my dad for that. You know, as I said, we've always had the kind of friendly Godzilla versus King Kong rivalry <laughs> because of it. But it's just interesting to see that our, our stories have a lot of similarities in them. Gene continues, between Netflix and Crackle, it seems there's a decent amount of streaming content out there, but I'm definitely going to have to look up the Ultra series as I've never seen those. Any recommendations on which series to start with, or should I just jump in at the beginning? Um, let me stop right there. You've got a lot of options right now. Personally, I would say start with Ultraman. Ultra Q, which is the first Ultra series, is available on DVD, and Ultra 7 is out there. And um, at least an official release here in the U.S., you can find others on bootleg. But a couple of things in Ultraman's favor. One, it is the first Ultraman series, not just Ultra series. So it's more what you would expect from an Ultraman show, to have a giant hero fighting the monster. Secondly, the DVD set is, is a lot cheaper because it's put out by Milk Creek Entertainment. You can get all 40 episodes for about $12 if you want to go that route. And if you, if, if you just want to check it out on streaming... On Hulu.com, not Hulu Plus, but on the regular Hulu, you can watch all 40 episodes of Ultraman uh, dubbed for free. So that might be a good place to start to really get an idea and the flavor of the Ultra series with one of the most... I mean, Ultraman is still held in very high regard as one of the best of the series. Ultra 7 is probably considered the best one, I would say, of the Showa. And Ultra 7 himself is hugely popular, but you can't go wrong with the original. It started the whole thing. So it had the enough of uh, endearing popularity to drive the series, and it's still going to this day. So that would be my recommendation. Let's see. Gene continues, it was great talking to you on the Two True Freaks Godzilla Roundtable, even if I was more of a background player. Keep up the great work with the show. I'll definitely be listening, Gene. Uh, P.S. Many thanks for playing the promo for the Hammer podcast on the latest show. I was not expecting to hear that, and I wanted to let you know I appreciate you spreading the word. Uh, signed, Gene. And Gene, of course, he writes the Hammer Strikes blog at thehammerstrikes.com, and he is the uh, produces the Hammer podcast, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com, and is a co-host of the Quantum Cast, also at twotruefreaks.com. Let me just address the Godzilla Roundtable, and uh, it's not so much, I think, that you were a background player, Gene, as I would not shut up. And that is a problem that I have. One of the reasons that I do this show solo is so that I don't have to deal with anyone else talking. No, I'm just kidding. But I did I did get a little, you know, I have a tendency to get a little hyped up on some of those shows, and I did probably talk a bit more. And I'm sorry if you didn't get to make your points, but I thought you, uh, you made some really good points about the movie on there, and I enjoyed talking with you uh, on the roundtable as well. And I would definitely recommend The Hammer Strikes and Quantum Cast. Quantum Cast covers uh, Marvel hero Quasar, you know, protector of the universe. And the Hammer podcast seems whatever Gene, kind of strikes Gene's fan, uh, fancy. There was a real good episode about mythology uh, a little while back that I really enjoyed. So good stuff. Definitely check that out. 
And remember, if you want to email into the show, go ahead and email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. Well, now it comes to the time in the show where everyone asks, Luke, what are you going to be doing next time? And next time, it's going to be episode 30 of the show, and we're going to stop and take a look back at where everything started. That's right, we're finally getting to it. We're going to be talking about 1954's Gojira, going all the way back to the original. And in honor of covering both Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters, I'm going to be taking a pause from doing the uh, Shogun Warriors comic. We will pick that up in the episode following that. This is going to be an episode dedicated entirely to uh, Inshiro Honda and Eji Tsuburaya's uh, legendary film launching the Godzilla series. Uh, So we're going to be watching both the Japanese and the American versions. I'm not exactly sure how the format is going to work on that. I may do... Um, you know, the, the traditional summary and comments and then bring in uh, the American comments after. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do that. But I'm really excited for it. I hope everyone out there is in the, is excited for this one. I figured with Godzilla 14 having just come out, it's a good time to go ahead and look back at where it all started with the original. And I want to do it on a round number, you know, number 30, so it's kind of like an anniversary. I thought about doing it for 25, but then a lot of stuff just kind of came out all at once with that, and I was like, well, let's save it for 30, and it'll be a nice uh, capstone to the first 30-plus episodes when you count the guidance and specials and everything to talk about Gojira, and then we'll be back on target for uh, continuing on with there. So, uh, like I said, please write in. You can reach me. Oh, I do want to mention this. I keep forgetting to say this. Um, you can leave an iTunes review. Uh, if you go to iTunes and search for Earth Destruction Directive, Uh, You can leave an iTunes review, and remember, every review you leave helps others find the show, and I'll keep trying to keep an eye on that. I don't use iTunes, so I never really think to look at it, but I appreciate all the comments that we've gotten so far. Uh, You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. Um, it's it's only for the show, so there's nothing really personal on there. It's only Daikaiju stuff. So if you want to see Daikaiju stuff, go ahead. If you're on the Two True Freaks group, and I would say recommend if you're a listener to go ahead and join the Two True Freaks uh, group on Facebook, you'll see me on there occasionally commenting and uh, generally attempting not to make an ass of myself. Uh, until then, like I said, coming back uh, next time, we're going to be watching Gojira and Godzilla King of the Monsters. And I hope everybody enjoyed this show. And until then, keep them stomping. Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. 
All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.